At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. There's always some type of barrier that is placed in front of groups, and it may be minorities, it, it may be those who uh, are, are, are newer to country, it, it may be you know those who are coming from just different socioeconomic backgrounds uh, in, in, in particular. And, and the reality is, is that not all technology is designed with everyone in mind. And while I was working in government, you know, I saw that play out. I, I did what I could uh, working with uh, incredibly talented individuals uh, in, our, in our office in order to try to, you know, I would say put better foundations in place. But then there was kind of this nagging thing behind in the back of my mind to say that, you know, more could be done, more could be accelerated. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. The Biden administration recently unveiled a national cybersecurity strategy with the aim of securing the country's critical infrastructure and improving its digital resilience. In addition to that, the administration has also proposed measures to combat pandemic-related fraud. This includes expanding the use of technology to detect and prevent fraud, as well as increasing penalties for those who engage in fraudulent activity. By doing so, the government hopes to prevent individuals and organizations from taking advantage of the pandemic to defraud citizens of their money and personal information. These recent measures will certainly benefit citizen service delivery by ensuring that the funds allocated for pandemic relief are used appropriately and efficiently. This will help to minimize waste and fraud, allowing more resources to be directed towards providing essential services to those who need them most. Moreover, Citizens will have greater confidence in the government's ability to manage the pandemic, knowing that measures are in place to prevent fraud and ensure transparency. In a recent LinkedIn post, Jordan Burris, the former chief of staff for the federal CIO at OMB and the current vice president at Socure, stated the importance of the administration's focus on identity. He noted that digital identity is now critical infrastructure. Under the status quo, Americans face rampant online identity theft and attacks on outdated systems while suffering from unnecessary burdens when accessing public services. He went on to applaud the administration for recognizing the need for change and taking steps to address the issues, particularly in helping victims of identity theft and funding countermeasures against systemic fraud. I asked Jordan to join the show to unpack some of the important pieces of the recent guidance and to translate how he believes it's going to make an impact on citizens directly. We're also going to talk about what he learned during his time in government that's helped him become a true partner to public sector entities now that he's at SoCure, and how his childhood impacted the passion he has for equitable service delivery for all Americans. All right, let's go. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. 
we're, we're here to unpack a little bit of some of the new guidance that came out of the White House. And I think it's going to be really meaningful, especially in the line of work that you're in around identity and kind of how that's going to impact overall government, especially the citizens. But before we go there, I, I want to little, talk a little bit about your background. You, very much like a lot of the guests that I bring on, whether they're in government or they're in the private sector, they have kind of done stints in both, right? You, before, before your time in government, you were in the private sector, and then you moved into a role eventually becoming chief of staff uh, for the federal CIO at OMB, and now you're back in the private sector at SoCure. But tell me a little bit about what you learned when you were in the public sector. I'm so kind of, I'm always interested to hear kind of some of the things that people say because they go into roles thinking, oh, it's it's going to be so much bureaucracy and it's going to be slow and it's going to be frustrating. And um, oftentimes I hear I hear the opposite and it's really cool to hear um, some of the stories that that people unpack on here. So kind of what did you find? What was your story there? Yeah, absolutely. So when I made the decision uh, to head into government originally, a lot of it was driven because of the, the clients I worked with at the time, right? I supported teams at the U.S. Census Bureau. I supported teams at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And the thing that always struck me was really their passion for public service and, and understanding the mission that they were there to solve, right? That that kind of stuck with me. And, and so when I made the decision to enter the government, you know, I wanted to do it and effectively, in any area where I could contribute ultimately to that mission, I was fortunate uh, to to join the team uh, in the office of the the federal CIO. And, and it's interesting when you know someone comes into government, you know they have to raise their hand, they they swear an oath um, to you know to defend the Constitution uh, ultimately. And 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 with that, it comes kind of this sense of purpose towards executing on that mission. Now at OMB uh, and OFCO in particular, our, our, our sense of purpose was, you know, unlocking the value of technology for yeah, everyone. Um, didn't matter if they were, you know, public entities, if they were private entities, average citizens, um, international users, right? It was how can we unlock the value of technology for them? How can we confirm that everyone was able to engage in that process? And, you know, the thing that struck stuck, stuck with me once, I was inside and I was having the conversations and engaging uh, with my colleagues was that, you know, that, that passion resonated with just about everyone uh, that I worked with. Um, government's hard, right? It, it, there's the reality that there's a lot, there's uh, some would call it bureaucracy. I would say just, um, you know, longstanding process and norms uh, that go into moving anything. And, and the reality is it's, it takes kind of the perspective that you need to embrace and understand Kind of the history associated with a decision, something that's in place, such that you can really carve out that new future. Uh, in particular, I say you know government officials usually don't have the luxury of only thinking in I would say short term uh, sprints or stints. And in some cases, we uh, in the private sector we kind of have that, that that luxury of flexibility. We have to also think about kind of the systemic nature of our decisions and more or less how they will impact folks down the road, even when it uh, is beyond us, right? So even the the work that I did uh, back in government, a lot of it was thinking about, you know, what happens when I'm no longer there? Uh, how, how does it continue to move forward? Am I doing something that is leaving ultimately uh, government and the, the broader country in a a better place. And so, you know, I, to those who, who stay on for, for a number of years and continue to, you know, fight the good fight, 
uh, my hats off uh, to them in particular. And I, you know, I view that with my return to private sector, if, if anything, it's me being a forever civil servant and finding a new way in which I can continue to contribute uh, to the mission overall. I think that, so that's a cool way to look at it, the way you position it. And I haven't heard anyone really frame it that way around sort of legacy, right? You want to, you're sort of leaving your legacy and putting your stamp on making making things just a little bit better for yeah. for everyone, which is which is kind of cool. And you you talked about bureaucracy. I want to I want to talk about that real fast because it's something that we've talked about on the show a fair amount about how oftentimes it's considered like a four letter word, but really bureaucracy is important, right? There needs to be a bureaucratic process in place to make sure that there aren't knee-jerk reactions and things that, because you said right it impacts so many so many people um were there were there things that you took away from your time there that you feel like now that you're in the private sector can really help you navigate some of that to ensure that you're continuing like you said fighting the good fight continuing to drive the mission forward even from the outside yeah, it's it's the understanding. The, the biggest thing I took away was really the understanding um, that it is it really is important to know the history of an effort of an initiative, and then to think about um, kind of all the interdependencies associated with moving it forward. Uh, and that, I mean that served me well uh, throughout my career, but it, it was if, if anything crystallized during my time in government. Right, the the understanding that one small move or one quick reaction to something can have, um, you know, either a detrimental effect uh, down the road or, or set you up uh, with a stronger foundation uh, for success uh, in particular. And so, you know, ultimately it's being kind of mindful and, and comprehensive and thinking uh, for, for all things that are done. Uh, and, you know, now that I'm at, over at SoCure and helping to engage with really what is public sector strategy, it's, it's understanding all the points in which we uh, can better serve the uh, mission for our customers in that space. And you, you talked about previously part of what your passion was in this role um, in, in government was equitable access to services, which I think is it's obviously important. And it was something that I, I feel like was not given the attention it should have been given until perhaps the pandemic kind of brought it, brought everything to a head. And I know one of the reasons why you moved over to SoCure was you felt like it was an opportunity to really in a meaningful way, continue that mission forward to drive equitable access to service. You tell, tell people a little bit about what that kind of what that means to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up, um, I grew up in, I think the technical term for it is broke uh, within the country. And um, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I had a, it was a single worker household. My dad was a cop um, and, and worked in, in Baltimore city. My mom stayed home, somehow managed, uh, you know, to, to teach us and do a number of things. Uh, and they, they made it through, but what I found when I was looking to engage for me personally uh, in, in, in various services, whether it be the financial system or, or others, is that it was always just a little bit harder uh, for me. And, you know, there was a part of me that kind of accepted the fact that it was, you know, just the way that it was. Translate to, you know, as I move on through my career and I'm engaging in, in different technology roles, I'm seeing that just in reality, it's the same 
uh, type of hurdle. There's there's always some type of barrier that is placed in front of groups, and it may be, you know, minorities. It, it may be those um, who uh, are, are are newer to country. It, it may be you know those who are coming from just different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, in, in in particular. And, and the reality is is that not all technology is designed with everyone in mind. There's, there's just kind of the reality there for me. And, and while I was working in government, you know, I saw that play out. I, I did what I could uh, working with uh, incredibly talented individuals uh, in, our, in our office in order to try to, you know, I would say put better foundations in place. But then there was kind of this nagging thing behind and in the back of my mind to say that, you know, more could be done, more could be accelerated. And, and for me, this, this took center stage uh, at the height of the pandemic, as we were, you know, listening to reports and, and hearing what was happening at the, the state level or even at the federal level, where folks were attempting to apply for benefits in their time of need, they were unable to get the access they so desperately needed, right? I had family members uh, who were struggling. I had friends that were struggling, their their friends, so on and so forth. And there was kind of this, this dawning moment that, you know, something had to change. Now, mind you, I would say back in the 2018 timeframe, we knew that there was the potential that something could go wrong, especially as it related to identity and, and really you know, equity in, in particular. And we, we called it out in the president's budget. You know, we highlighted that we had to do more to modernize our approaches to identity proofing and, you know, confirm that confirm that we were getting ahead of what the future could be. You know, fast forward to when the pandemic occurred, nothing really changed. Um, and having, you know, two daughters, uh, now, uh, one's two and a half and the, the other nine months, I didn't want them to have to necessarily struggle uh, in the future being able to prove their identity, right? So I felt, if anything, kind of a uh, sense of purpose to make sure that I could do it. I uh, I could do everything in my power to set a, a better foundation for them. So that's what led me to uh, come out of uh, government and, and really join Secure, really because of what I believe in their mission space, uh, the, the ability for them to approach equity, especially as it relates to digital services uh, in a way that hasn't been seen before in public service uh, or public sector in particular. Uh, and so for me, I think it's it's really, it, it's kind of given me that motivation uh, to, to keep, you know, fighting the good fight on this end uh, and uh, seeing what we can do to, to unlock uh, digital services for various groups so they're not having to struggle uh, in the future. I've known you for a little bit, but it, I always, every time I hear you kind of tell that story, um, I mean, honestly, it gives me goosebumps a little bit because you, you kind of, you talk with such a passion around the mission and really driving it forward. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a cool thing to see somebody have, um, a purpose bigger than themselves and really kind of carrying it forward. And you've talked about progress. I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, and I want to unpack, um, some of last week's actions by the white house. Just tell our listeners what, what did they do and why is it so important? Yeah. So they, they made two moves that kind of, uh, uh were long awaited, if you will, from, from those of us who follow the, the federal government, uh, closely, uh, one, they released uh, what is the update or the new version of the National Cybersecurity Strategy. And this is an effort that was spearheaded uh, by former uh, National Cyber Director Chris Inglis and uh, our now current or, or acting uh, National Cyber Director uh, Kemba Walden. And the idea here was to, to basically set forth the markers for the government's approach to, to cybersecurity and more and more importantly, what we want to do at kind of a national scale. So that was, that was area number one. There's a number of 
great elements that they incorporated there. And it was an honor for me to have the privilege for a brief period in time to overlap with Mr. Inglis uh, in particular uh, and, you know, uh, learn from him uh, to how he viewed kind of the, the over-evolving uh, cybersecurity landscape. Um, but the second thing that they did, um, which was for the identity community of those who, you know, support um, identity services in particular, uh, they released really what was a anti-fraud proposal that more or less signaled not only what is forthcoming in the uh, president's budget anticipated on March 9th, um, uh, this year, uh, but also, uh, previewed what was in the executive order that's been discussed related to digital identity or, or digital theft and benefits, uh, for, um, and it's been previewed since the state of the union in, I think, 2022, uh, the, the president's talked about it a few times along with his advisors. And, and so, uh, I think, you know, if anything, it, it really kind of gave light into what the administration has been thinking. Uh, and it, it set up really what should be an exciting year, uh, for, uh, public sector in particular, both as it relates to cybersecurity, but, um, also as it relates to, to digital identity. Uh, yeah. And I, I want to dig in there a little bit. Um, Tell me how I, I saw I saw your post on LinkedIn and you called this this strategy a game changer. Why why is it so important as it impacts identity and how do you really feel or do you really feel like this is going to have a meaningful impact long term? Yeah, so um, it's a game changer in, in a, a few areas, right? One, I think overall the national cyber strategy you know sets in place the idea that. We need to shift incentives. It actually was one of the many debates uh, we used to have uh, during my time in government, right? Is how do we kind of change this compliance-driven mindset or this this desire that we only take the what is the appropriate action um, after something has occurred? Uh, there's some type of major event uh, ultimately in the cybersecurity realm, it, but it, it starts to shift the, the the dialogue associated with that and, and talks about the need really for um, you know, using regulation or levers that are available today in order to put accountability where it should be, both with the providers and, and shifting it away from kind of the end user as being the the last um, the the last protector, if you will, of uh, the computer system or or um, their 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 online experience. Uh, in particular, and it also sets out markers for what what future what the future can be, and you know how you build a stronger foundation as it relates to digital identity. Not only did it call for, I would say, you know, market improvements to uh, our approaches to leveraging other types of technologies, understanding the kind of the status quo that has been in place uh, doesn't necessarily work. We need to do more and create really what is an ecosystem. One of the things I've always talked about is the reality that identity. Uh, should be considered critical infrastructure uh, in particular, and that it should be invested and prioritized important uh, as such. Um, they basically set in place markers to do that, but then also they talked about, and, and maybe it was one of the pieces that folks may not have gleaned on um, right out of the gate, but they talked about the need for measurement and transparency. And in, in particular, when you're looking to solve a problem, especially one that's impacting different demographics and different groups, the only way in which you actually make progress is to measure your impact, to measure what is happening on the ground. And so I think it was absolutely vital uh, that they, they an imperative that they include something like that. Uh, ultimately, I, I, I've called for it personally, and they did, right? They, they talked about the importance of that and then further translating into 
uh, what was the, the anti-fraud proposal, there was a number of things that they incorporated in there, which just basically further doubled down on that premise and, and understanding that kind of the, the status quo didn't work and a broader change was needed. So, you know, kudos to them uh, for the work they're doing there, but it, understanding that this is just kind of uh, one, one, uh, one piece of the puzzle. There's a longer story here. There's a lot of work uh, to be done. And so, you know, for me personally, I'm excited to do what I can to partner uh, where possible to, to help support the administration's efforts. I'm glad you b- brought up transparency because I want to double click on that a little bit. Obviously, I think anyone would agree it's important to measure impact so you can um, understand your, obviously your, the progress you're making, but understand your blind spots and, and get better. But why is it so important to kind of share that out to the broader community? I think we've seen this in other areas where you can kind of, as a community, as an ecosystem, you can kind of learn and have things adapt and get better as a whole. But you're also, I mean, th- there's there's obviously challenge to that by being too transparent. But why is it why is it so important to do that? And is this something you guys are doing at SoCare? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the reality for transparency or just in general, and I think it was a Supreme Court justice um, that said it uh, at one point in time, it was, uh, you know, sunlight is, is one of the best disinfectants, uh, ultimately, right? If you're, if you're really looking to understand what needs to change, what needs to evolve, it's, it's better to put things uh, out in the open. I can tell you for a number of years, under, even under the prior administration, you know, we were working on kind of trying to understand the root cause of problems, trying to really understand, like for, especially as related to things like improper payments or payment integrity, what was the reason and why it was going wrong, right? Was it the manual processes? Was it the kind of the checklist-based approach? Was it some something systemic related to identity? There was always a challenge in doing so. And then whenever there was a thought of, hey, fraud is taking place, but we don't know to the extent of what what's occurring. There was never an answer that we could, you know, clearly draw a line to understanding what was happening or really what the 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 after impact, if you were, was um, to, to individuals as new controls, new measures uh, were, were put into place. And so, you know, when we talk about uh, the the importance of uh, transparency and measurement, it, it's really about being able to highlight how good something is performing uh, within the ecosystem, whether or not folks are being disadvantaged, what things are being done to better solve or augment um, what would be that that user experience ultimately at the end of the day, such that we're designing our platforms, our our technologies, our our experience overall that caters to everyone and meets them where they are, and that we're really taking targeted approaches to overcome things that may be systemic that they can't control. You know, for an example, it often gets talked about about an, uh, quite a bit of the population today within the U.S. is what's called credit invisible, basically meaning they, they don't have a substantial credit footprint. They could be someone who just you know came into the country or someone who grew up like me, did not have a really good financial um, footprint uh, in, in particular. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to engage uh, in an online world, an online channel. It doesn't mean that they should have to go wait hours in lines uh, and to do something in person because they you know, couldn't confirm who they were online. And I think it's, you know, absolutely critical when we start to really have the debate and discussion around measurement and transparency that we're doing more to to highlight how many folks are are being disadvantaged, how many folks are being able to get through the process, what are effectively the approval rates uh, ultimately at the end of the day. And that, you know, I think that's ultimately a, a standard that should be held 
not only by uh, the companies that support um, public sector or, or financial services or, or other industries, but uh, also it should be a standard that's held by the government in particular, because that's the only way we can all come together and kind of unify and rally around the central premise of what must be done uh, to improve um, citizen experience and access overall. It feels like when we talk about all coming together, where my brain goes is I start thinking about public-private partnerships. And in my opinion, I feel like those have really evolved I felt like we're we're a little bit beyond the days where the government's kind of giving private sector the Heisman. They're looking and they see the value there. I'm curious to know from your vantage point, when you were in government, what what did you see um, that really worked from from that perspective, from a public-private partnership perspective? And where do you see areas for improvement? And what can companies be doing to be able to perhaps engage government in a more meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, so when um, you think about engaging in a technology policy, um, engaging in technology policy in particular and doing so at the national level, there's a lot of things that you just don't see. I mean, that folks may not want to admit it, um, but not everyone has all the answers as they're working in government. The, the reality for me was that I actually learned more about what was evolving in the ecosystem. And even in the amount of time, you know, I served, you know, what was it, four and a half years in in government uh, in particular, during that period of time, there were a ton of advancements, uh, some of which I had no clue um, were, were happening despite my best efforts in reading and, you know, trying trying to attend various conferences and so on. And so it, it's really a matter for, you know, commercial industry in particular to be able to kind of raise their hand and highlight what the art of the possible is, um, what, what can be done with the tools, not necessarily to, you know, sell their products, even though understanding there was a business out there, an aspect to it, but really understanding, you know, how it could be used to advance the mission overall. What are things that we you know, potentially couldn't think about? I remember when um, under the prior administration, there was the, the push towards um, shifting from low value to high value work. And it really was a discussion amongst um, chief financial officers uh, and, and their CIO counterparts or chief information officer counterparts about what could we use with robotic process automation? What could we do uh, in particular to advance the ball there there, and, and really leverage it to get away from you doing the more mundane manual tasks and shifting our people to really the, the, the highly analytical thought exercises that go along with um, you know public sector work at the end of the day. And so I think for the private sector in particular, this partnership, it, it has to be one where kind of we're, we're able to understand where the government is coming from, understand the challenges that they are looking to solve, identify where there is opportunity or even and when the there is you know nothing that exists today, go out and create um, and, and help kind of bootstrap the, the work that they want to do. Uh, ultimately, for me, that's always been the most effective partnerships that I've seen in public sector, one where kind of the, there's the unification of effort um, across both bodies. But it takes really what is that broader collaboration um, uh, across both groups and, and, and sharing of information to understand like the, the challenge to be solved um, uh, at the end of the day. I like that you brought up that RPA example because you're right. I mean, I, I remember when RPA was kind of I guess considered a a long way emerging technology. Now it's a little bit a little bit closer to mainstream. Not quite there yet, but it's a really good example of how you take a look at a directive or some type of uh, policy that was pushed down, and then it kind of opens things up to okay, what's out there? 
um, for me, it kind of begs the question, we have this guidance that came out last week, um, especially around, obviously around cyber, but especially around identity. What new federal resources do you think this is going to kind of bring to the table in the same way that maybe folks might have explored RPA and other technologies for that low-value to high-value work initiative within the, within the PMA? What do you think this is going to bring? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, first and foremost, there's going to be a lot of work, I believe, that takes place at the at NIST uh, in particular, uh, both in understanding, you know, different ways in which you can approach identity, different ways in which you can measure identity in particular. And for me, that's pretty exciting. I know that, you know, they have the NCCOE or National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, which is used to test out um, different tools, techniques, uh, and approaches. They've done this before with the Zero Trust. I, I, if I was a betting uh, individual, I would assume that there will likely be, you know, similar projects that uh, eventually are stood up over there uh, in order to evaluate what happens with identity and different ways you can approach it. So I think first and foremost, I think, you know, having, having those test beds available on ways in which you can kind of see what, what the future could be, what the art of possible is. I think that's one thing that immediately will, will come out of kind of the reprioritization exercise that's taking place um, from the federal standpoint. But then also there's, this discussion about resources uh, from you know financial aspect and, and kind of what they previewed of what's forthcoming in the president's budget and what's um, to be done with existing funding that was already put out through the American uh, Rescue Plan uh, by by Congress. The reality is is that they called for you know what was a billion dollars in uh, new spending alone for just you know being able to and I kitchen say just but being able to advance kind of the foundation or the underlying infrastructure associated with digital identity this includes things such as you know improving data sharing across group uh, across organizations and agencies um, being able to modernize, you know, public services in particular, get them off of those old uh, platforms and mainframes where, where possible um, doing more with what is predictive analytics. Uh, and, and that is something that, you know, I I'm uh, encouraged to see that that approach is being taken because through predictive analytics, it's ultimately how you're able to better manage risk at the end of the day, instead of thinking of things as kind of a stand, static binary, uh, yes, no, uh, ultimately, uh, but then also there's you know authorities that they're uh, I think they're contemplating related to what does it mean to reinvest money that's been saved or recovered for from you know fighting fraud uh, ultimately. Now in financial services, there's this you know discussion of opex, and, and effectively when you're able to cut down your fraud losses for a bank or, or others, you can then use that money and uh, for other parts of the business. The government, not necessarily just because of the way our appropriations process uh, works, you're not necessarily able to have that level of flexibility with reallocating funding. And what some of the proposals that they're they're highlighting give potentially that opportunity to start to take that more uh, that uh, approach where you're really starting to look at trade-offs and return on investment. I think that becomes then a powerful tool to digital identity and, and fraud prevention. Uh, overall. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that maybe got buried in in a lot of the stories that came out and for me is, I think, impactful uh, is actually the work with victims of identity theft uh, and talking about, you know, how they want to go further with what's being done with identitytheft.gov and what the FTC is doing. Um, and the reality is, is that those who suffer identity theft, those who who have had their identity stolen, usually the burden is placed on them to go figure everything out, right? To call the credit bureaus, to call their banks, to put freezes on things. And they have to do it through multiple, you know, call centers, hotlines, um, forms, 
uh, and it doesn't necessarily always uh, work at the end of the day. I think the reality is that they're planning to take more of a holistic approach where one to one where um, there's kind of this one stop shop or one stop center uh, for folks to come and, and, and get on the journey to to reestablishing their identity. I think that's that's super impactful. And for those who were impacted during the pandemic um, by the, the rampant fraud that was taking place or even those that are experiencing it now, because, you know, fraud is never really going to go away, it just continues to evolve. I think that this is a very much uh, an added tool that the uh, administration is looking to put in place. Um, now, again, there's there's much more that remains in the process. And even though that they've talked publicly about what they want to do, there's still work that has to be done in the halls of Congress. Um, and I think that that's also where collaboration will be key between what would be the administration um, and the legislative branch uh, to to really hone in on where focus needs to be, what can be supported, and then ultimately balance the various trade-offs that are going to be needed in our, 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 our preparations process to make sure that those resources are made available um, for, for the intended purpose uh, by the administration. Like a lot of changes we see, I think we, we often talk about how um, the digital transformation of things or modernization things really boils down to the people. And I think when it comes to the people, it's really a shift in mindset. And I think what you really just described is unequivocally a, a shift in mindset that the administration is kind of pushing out for, so people can look at this problem from different, from a different angle, from a different lens with kind of a more of a, I, I guess, informed and intentional filter, which is for me kind of cool. And, and with that, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit as we wrap up. After after this guidance is pushed out, we're going to see this executive order coming. Make a make a little bit of a prediction. What what do you think? What type of impact will will this have over the next three, five, seven years? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to say something to the effect of it depends, and a lot of it will <laughs> depend on how this rollout goes, and more or less whether or not lessons have been learned historically when there's kind of these bold visions and, and statements that are put out and look, I'll be, I'll be, you know, clear of like, there was a former national cybersecurity strategy that was put out. Not everything was done as part of it. There, we came down to a prioritization exercise. As I look to what's happening with the current national cyber strategy and understanding what they want to do with digital identity. And a lot of this is going to require this partnership between the executive branch and Congress. And the reality is five years down the road, if they are able to get the right support, have the right conversations, I think industry um, plays a supportive role here. I actually think we can be much further in, in really redefining uh, digital identity for the American public and not one that is kind of the, the scary big brother um, sense towards uh, uh, digital identity, but, but one where um, folks are more empowered to uh, assert uh, their their identities online. They have you know seamless mechanisms that are available to do it, and and one where kind of this this overarching burden for everyone to be able to prove and confirm who they are that kind of fades away. And then assuming that they incorporate the measures of transparency, we're then only going to be seeing a drive towards you know a hundred percent accuracy. Uh, ultimately, and then there's going to be just debates about who is more accurate. You know, we look at, um, think, for example, various algorithms that are out there from a classification standpoint, right? Which one is at 99, um, you know, 0.5% classification versus the one that's at 99.8 uh, uh, in particular. So I think there's, there's definitely the opportunity to set a strong foundation here for identity where we can see it start to pay out in five years. And I say beyond that, uh, what we're probably going to end up doing is 
playing more uh, at the national, uh, I would say the international level, uh, right? There's already digital identity ecosystems that have been set up in the EU, Australia, UK, um, and, and Canada in particular. And I think what we're going to be doing is better unifying um, and connecting those in a manner such that folks seamlessly can engage uh, as they uh, not only operate within the US, but then across borders uh, as well. Um, and so I would say that if we, if we do all the work that goes into this, and, and trust me, there's a lot uh, that does go into this, uh, then I, I definitely see a future that really hasn't kind of unlocked kind of the online realm for individuals as they engage internationally. Um, but again, the, the starting marker is going to be what we can do here uh, within the U.S. So to sum it up, it depends. Yes, uh, <laughs> ultimately it depends. It's a very government answer of me um, in particular, but yeah. Hey, Jordan, uh, I really appreciate you being on here. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners today? Yeah, no, I, look, I, I appreciate the discussion today. And I think the reality is, is that there's, there's always a lot that gets talked about related to digital identity. Um, for, for me in particular, for a number of folks on my team, like we view it as something that is essential uh, to, to unlocking access uh, to a number of uh, individuals. Uh, and so you know, I'm excited to see kind of what the administration uh, does next on this, um, in this, this next phase, uh, along with you know, their, their work with Congress. Uh, in, in particular, um, and so like like many of you, um, uh, we'll be we'll be waving the flag uh, and doing what we can to support them. I, I think it's glaringly obvious there probably isn't a person I could have brought on that could have unpacked and kind of put into layman's terms um, what came out last week and the impact it's going to have. So Jordan, I can't thank you enough for being on here today and kind of sharing those types of insights uh, with the listeners. Um, really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittastray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.